but there are definitely large uncertainties that can only really be brought down and, and right now through substantial technical activities. And that's where we think the, the big changes from all of the efforts in the last decades, which has been on paper essentially by most agencies doing a lot of analysis, showing that potential, but very little hardware development, testing, in-space testing to get real data on the feasibility of space-based solar power. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, everyone. Have you heard the proverb, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go astray? Well, my plans for this week's episode haven't exactly gone astray. But I have had to tweak what I thought was going to be part two on space-based solar power, and that's because there's some pretty big news about it. And in this episode, we have a stellar panel to discuss it. Before I go on, if you are in need of a grounding of what space-based solar power is, please listen to last week's episode, which is part one of this series. You can find a link to it in the show notes. So let's get on to the news. This week, the European Space Agency's Director General Josef Oschbacher announced that this November, when the ministers representing the agency's 22 member nations come to Paris, he wants them to arrive ready to commit money and expertise to developing space-based solar power for Europe. An announcement on a ministerial council meeting, which, by the way, only happens every couple of years or so, is made only if the director general and the staff have first held consultations with the member states. Sort of like a vehicle closeout in the days before a launch, except this is for policy. That way, when it comes time for the go-no-go poll, the ministers will cast their votes and a project will have ignition. What this boils down to is Europe is primed to move forward with its own proprietary space-based solar power program independently. That means ESA is getting ready to go beyond simply writing a report that admires the problem. They want to start cracking the technology challenges. The director general made his announcement on the heels of his agency's simultaneous release of two cost-versus-benefit reports. To discuss these developments in Europe and look at some of the issues here in the United States, we've got from ESA Sanjay Vijendran, who is heading up Europe's space-based solar power efforts, and Peter Gerritsen, the primary author of the first DoD report on space-based solar power, and John Mankins, president of Artemis Innovation Management Solutions. He's a former NASA physicist. And while he doesn't say so in our discussion, the authors of both ESA reports consulted John and used his solar power satellite concept called SPS Alpha Mark III to reach some of their key conclusions. Here is our conversation. Hello, Sanjay, John, welcome to the podcast. And Peter, welcome back. Thank you very much, Laura. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you all so much for graciously making the time in all of the various time zones to discuss space-based solar power and this week's news coming out of Europe as well. 
as well as the United States, what's developing in the necessary policy and technologies to make this a reality. So let's start off with introductions. Peter, you are a frequent guest, but as you know, new listeners are joining this audience all the time. So please briefly introduce yourself and tell us where you are and what you're working on now. So Laura, I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council and run a podcast called the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm currently finishing up a book on American space grand strategy with Rich Harrison, and I'm presently in Montgomery, Alabama. And John, you've been a leading voice for SBSP for decades. Let's have you go next. Please tell us where you are and what you're working on. So uh, I'm on the central coast of California, about a 100 kilometers north of Santa Barbara. I am a uh, longtime advocate and student of the subject of space solar power. Uh, I think I'm I'm probably widely recognized as one of the leading experts in the field. And I've come to this uh, hoping to see it happen and hoping that it can make a difference in climate change over the coming decades. And Sanjay, you're with ESA. I'd like my audience to know just how lucky we are to have you on the podcast today. But before we get to your news, please tell us about yourself and where you are and what you're working on. Sure, Lawrence. I'm speaking to you from uh, the Netherlands, and I work for the European Space Agency, and I'm based at their uh, largest technical center here in the Netherlands. It's called ESTEC. And my day job is really in Mars exploration, which I've been working in for over a decade, planning future Mars missions for Europe. Um, but in the last couple of years, I got involved with space-based solar power and have been um, leading an internal effort to try to put together a proposal for Europe and the European Space Agency in particular to try to take some next steps in the area of space-based solar power uh, to really understand better if this has the real potential, which uh, we've looked into in the past, but we think the time is right to, to go a little bit further in this direction. ESA released not one, but two reports this week about space-based solar power. If you were writing the headline, what would it be? And who do you think needs to hear that story? And who actually needs to read it? Right. So the headline, I think, would be that Europe is seeking to further investigate the potential of space-based solar power for clean energy in the future. It's not a new topic to ESA. We've looked at this subject over the last uh, few decades, uh, like other agencies around the world. Funding for technology development and uh, studies have come in, in spurts, but it's always seemed to be premature, not the right time for it to be, in particular, economically viable more than technically viable. And in the last couple of years, with the uh, changes and the urgency with uh, the energy transition and climate change, as well as the whole change in the space sector, new technologies, reduced launch costs, really thought it was high time to take a look at this again, just to see if uh, it would be the right step for Europe to uh, invest further to understand the potential of space-based solar power. So I think the uh, cost-benefit uh, study results that we've just released this week should provide that uh, factual basis for uh, really understanding if now is the right time to to take space-based solar power further and to really understand its technical feasibility and its uh, economic potential. And uh, I would encourage uh, certainly our future stakeholders, the, the ESA member states who have to fund such a program uh, in the future, but uh, as well as international partners, 
and the general public to, to, to understand that there is potentially an exciting new energy source that could be a big contributor in the in the, our clean energy future. And, it, and it's, this is not something that happens very often that a new energy source uh, becomes potentially viable uh, that could meet our terrestrial needs. So it is of, of general interest uh, for everybody at least to read the summary reports. And uh, I hope uh, you, you find it convincing. ESA's Director General, your big boss, Joseph uh, Oshbacher, and I really hope I haven't mangled his name, but he announced on LinkedIn that he intends to propose to ESA's member states at the council meeting at ministerial level that they should commit to developing the technology and the funding to create and deploy a space-based solar power project. Isn't what the Director General would be asking for is another report. And I'm asking on behalf of those who will say, this is just admiring the problem. So maybe you could tell us, you know, what's the process, what's the steps, and how does this actually get off the ground? So where we are right now is at the point where we think this has uh, a lot of potential, but there's a, there are a huge number of challenges ahead. And there's even a lot of uncertainty in this potential and the economic viability. So our cost-benefit results have come with some very positive-looking uh, results, but there are definitely large uncertainties that can only really be brought down and, and right now through substantial technical activities. And that's where we think the, the big changes from all of the efforts in the last decades, which has been on paper essentially by most agencies doing a lot of analysis, showing that potential, but very little hardware development, testing, in-space testing to get real data on the feasibility of space-based solar power. And we think in order to get confidence one way or the other, if it's going to work or not going to work, we need this level of additional uh, data that, that can convince us. And so that's going to cost some money. We're not talking about a full development program at this stage. We think that's premature to propose with what we know today. So that's why we're planning to go to the ministerial with a proposal to have a substantial, small but substantial research and development program to really look at all of these technical aspects, as well as system aspects of what a whole uh, space solar power satellite might look like, what the big uh, regulatory challenges are, the policy challenges as well, the economic uh, uh, issues related, cover all of these things in much more depth than we've done in the past. And then once we have all of that information on the table and we are expecting to do this in a short time, in two to three years, which is rather accelerated uh, compared to how we normally would do things, we then would like to put that on the table for decision makers to decide if that's good enough to go forward with a full program. So it's a, it's a first step, but it's going to be, we hope, a substantial step to give us that, that confidence if we want to move forward later or not. You know that most people, especially policymakers and the politicians that hold the purse, they're going to want to know what is this going to cost Europe and, and what's it going to cost not to do it, especially knowing that reaching carbon neutrality by 2050 is law in a number of nations. You know, how, how, much, how much are we talking about? So from the uh, latest cost-benefit study results, uh, which we had two uh, different contracts for, and this is pretty standard practice for us to undertake uh, the same study with different uh, industrial contractors to get different perspectives, uh, to utilize different methodologies to come 
to, to looking at the problem. And that's what we did in this case as well. And we took, also took the opportunity of having, uh, with having two uh, studies to look at two different uh, space power satellite architectures. There are some designs uh, out there uh, that are uh, reasonably mature, one from the UK for Cassiopeia and one from our fellow gas John Mankins for SPS Alpha. And so with these existing architectures, without going into uh, trying to design a new European uh, ESA uh, architecture at this stage, we use those as, as references to understand whether there were significant differences or sensitivities to the architecture for the results we were going to get. And so the costs come, come out as a result in a range because these different designs produce uh, satellites of, in particular, different sizes and different masses. But they range between uh, development costs, we're talking about here, range between 15 and about 30 billion euros to be spent over 10 years. And not just to build the first operational prototype, but to do significant orbital demonstrations at subscale on the way to that. As you'll see in the cost-benefit study results, there's an yeah, initial indication of what a development uh, roadmap might be. And it foresees a first megawatt scale demonstrator to be put in orbit in less than 10 years. And if that works, then we would bring that up by an order of magnitude to 10 or more megawatts as, a, as the next step before attempting to do a gigawatt scale uh, system, which is the level we would want to get to to make a, a fully operational uh, satellite to serve terrestrial needs. So it is a step, may sound like a substantial amount of money, and of course it is, but to put that in context, uh, Bloomberg in April this year released a report about how much it would cost Europe to transition to a fully net zero clean energy economy by 2050. And we're talking about sums of four to five trillion dollars or euros. And most of that being spent in power generation over the next uh, 30 years. So when we talk about what it would cost to develop this potential new source being essentially 1% of that, uh, it doesn't seem unreasonable to invest in a potential contributor to net zero. John and Peter, I want to give you a chance to ask if, if you wish. Peter? Well, I, I was just sort of interested in uh, if you're successful, what will this look like? You know, which, which European states industries are most likely to be involved? And, you know, what is sort of the anticipated uh, mix of, uh, of public and private if you were to actually get the 15 to 30 billion to uh, move to, um, and I also was curious, does that 30 billion take you to the one megawatt, the 10 megawatt or the full gigawatt? Thanks, uh, Peter. So I'll, I'll answer that last uh, question first. So in, in the uh, uh, study by Roland Berger, where that uh, figure of uh, 30 odd billion is quoted, that was uh, for the uh, full gigawatt scale uh, system. So including the costs of the demonstrators on the way, the full, the full program up to, up to that point. Um, with regards to the interest uh, from the member states and from the industries, that's something that we are still at the early stages of trying to understand uh, our next step. In fact, from here, now that we've released these cost-benefit uh, study results is to socialize these with our stakeholders, um, help them understand that, that potential and, and to uh, help us understand from them what their interests might be strategically, uh, industrially, and we have just a few weeks ago released a request for information to European industry to 
find out who has the state-of-the-art capabilities in all of these important technological areas for space-based solar power, as well as get their view on what they think of the challenges of getting to these extremely high performance levels and, and, and low cost levels and, and mass efficient levels that space-based solar power drives a lot of these technologies too. And that, that, that brings me to a point I want to uh, emphasize is that with space-based solar power, the, the challenges result in us needing to advance many different areas of, of space technology beyond, far beyond the levels of most other applications today or, or foreseeable in the, in the near term. And so it's really a driver of new capabilities for countries that wish to in, invest in this. And the best thing of all is that it's really a, a no regret investment in terms of the technologies, because even if we didn't go ahead with space-based solar power, all of these technologies, whether it's high efficiency power generation or uh, transmitting uh, high power radio frequencies or in-orbit servicing and, and manufacturing and assembly, all of these would be useful for many other space applications as well. So it's it's hopefully they're going to see, our stakeholders are going to see that it's a win-win investment, whichever way we decide to go in a few years' time. So if I could, uh, Laura, I'd like to uh, take the conversation in a slightly different direction. Uh, in particular, uh, I've always viewed space solar power like climate change as a global challenge. Uh, it's not something that one country or one region can solve all by itself. And for the economics of space solar power, the same solar power satellite that provides power to Berlin can, in the off hours, provide power to Kinshasa uh, or to Cape Town. Uh, because by its nature, you put the platform uh, in an Earth orbit where it can address a fairly significant fraction of Earth's population from one power station. And so in framing the proposal for the preparatory program, um, I would ask, uh, have you given much thought yet to how the global community might be woven into those efforts so that if the preparatory program were technically successful, it would also be successful from a diplomatic and a policy standpoint in having uh, knit Europe into this broader community of, of, of competence and interest? Thanks, John. Uh, great, great question. So as part of our activities that we're planning to do with this uh, program, if it gets fun funded and goes forward, is the uh, important aspect of building partnerships, because we fully recognize, uh, as you say, the, um, the need and value of uh, international engagement on this topic, uh, given the scale of it. And simply because some aspects like uh, orbital slot allocation and frequency allocation have to, can only be agreed at international level. So international engagement will be absolutely key. But in terms of the partnerships, that, that's going to start um, already at the, at the local level for us uh, within Europe. Uh, we see opportunities for partnering with industry, with commercial uh, energy providers. We see opportunities to partner with other public institutions, national governments, and then more widely outside of Europe with other nations in order to um, initially share experiences as we, as we develop the capabilities and uh, safety regulations, as well as uh, policy issues with space-based solar power, all of this would definitely benefit from uh, international discourse and it will be an important aspect of our uh, program to pursue this path in parallel with the technical uh, activities. Thank you for those. You know, what 
struck me about the two reports uh, that ESA released this week are the similarities. Pretty amazing. I mean, most especially that they both prioritize the necessity for Europe to regain and then secure its energy sovereignty. Do you think that argument alone is enough to convince the other European capitals to buy into SBSP? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what would actually hold Europe back from moving forward with this project? Is it at all controversial? So thanks, Laura. Um, of course, that's uh, uh, when you when you mention energy sovereignty or, or independence, that is uh, then probably the number one political topic uh, in discussion uh, today in Europe uh, because of the times uh, we're living in. But as I said earlier, we came about. Uh, with this from the angle of, of climate change, and that is uh, an extremely important uh, aspect of why we're doing this. And of course, this year, the issue of energy uh, independence, which is something that was also recognized in the past, and when we saw space-based solar powers offering potential in that direction as well. But that issue has really been brought to the fore uh, in recent times. So. I think in the short term, allow European governments to be more open-minded about space-based solar power as they are struggling to find ways to achieve that energy independence that is so important now, both in the short term, but they also have to think about the medium and the long term. And perhaps short-term solutions now are not the solutions that will be the right ones for the long term. And so uh, we, we think the environment is, is right for stakeholders to, uh, to at least listen about space-based solar power and see what it might offer, even if it's not immediate, if it's in 10, 15 years or more. Uh, this is a problem that's going to persist, so we, we need, do need to think long-term. Um, what might stop them moving forward with, the, with a project in the future? As I said, the, the whole point of the next few years is to understand whether it is worth moving forward or not. So if the technology uh, challenges are too great, if the costs turn out to be much greater than we have uh, estimated so far, if other blocking points come come in the way, that will be reason not to to go forward uh, then. Yeah, it's it's not only economics uh, with this. It's 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 not only strategic, uh, strategic there's, there's uh, political aspects. There's many different aspects that uh, come into uh, such a uh, important aspect as as energy, and so um, it's it's hard to say right now uh, what might be uh, the reason not to move forward with this. Uh, there, there could be many. Guys, the end of that last question was purposeful. I had no idea that space-based solar power is controversial as in the subject here in the United States. And I received that bittersweet education immediately after part one of this series was released. People I respect, like electrical engineers and space and defense experts, they decried that one episode of the podcast, let alone two, focused on space-based solar power. And I'd like to address this head on because frankly, I'm not NATO or ESA. Reaching consensus is not my current job. Exploring issues, challenges, and ideas, and challenging ideas is. So as I'm a relative noob here on this line, I'm turning to you, John and Peter, to take a moment and explain what the heck is sticking in some people's craw. They complain space-based solar power is too costly, will take too long, and would be only a very minor addition to the global energy market mix, you know, by 2040, if ever. 
you know, John, how do you react to that? What do you see? What, why is this? So a lot of these, a lot of this um, uh, dread of the subject, i.e. this is a subject too terrible to even be thought about, much less spoken of, to many uh, middle and senior engineers in both space and energy in the U.S. because of the experience of the studies in the 1970s. When they first thought about solar power satellites after the invention at the end of the 60s, and when the first studies were done using the technologies of the Apollo era, the costs were wildly out of the realm of feasibility. They, they're on the order of a thousand billion dollars to get the first kilowatt. And the people who were involved in those studies, uh, they had their careers damaged 40 years ago. Now you might think, well, 40 years ago, most of those people have now retired, but all of those people brought up young engineers as their mentors and their acolytes, and they were taught this subject is a horrible thing. Don't go near it. Don't let anybody talk about it. That's one. Two, there's another competitor for the space energy side of things, and that's space nuclear power. Well, if space solar power is fully successful and can deliver power at tens of cents or 10 cents or less to Earth, then it will be by far the most effective and successful energy source for space exploration and development throughout the inner solar system, wherever the sun shines. And that would be damaging to the visions and the dreams of people who've been working on space nuclear power since the 1960s. Since For 60 years, that community has wanted to see their technology go forward, and not just for the outer planets. The, for the for deep space where the sun doesn't shine very brightly. And so that's the second one. Um, and the third one, I think, is really that for uh, space solar power in the U.S., there really is no natural home within the government. Uh, there's the, U the NASA only does space, not energy. Uh, the Department of Energy, for the most part, except for radiothermal isotope uh, uh, generators, RTGs, they only do energy, not space. And so there's no natural bin, no place to be responsible for something that's both space and energy. And you don't see this in other uh, governmental systems. You don't see it in the UK. You don't see it in uh, Japan or China or Europe. But in the US, there's this rigid stovepipe. And so this combination, it's anathema. You shall not think of this and if you've spoken of it, that means you must have thought of it, and, and therefore you shouldn't. And secondly, it's a threat to space nuclear. And thirdly, it's a, it's, it doesn't fit. And, and on the NASA side, they have enough missions. On the, D, the Department of Energy side, they've already got solar and wind. They've got their R&D agendas. They're not looking for something new to come along. If they want to talk about new, they talk about fusion. And so it's just a mess in the US, and it's a mess that is born of decades of painful learning on the part of, of many senior engineers and uh, middling uh, senior managers going back decades. You know, another thing that I got pushed back on was that we're paying too much attention to trying to keep up with China. I mean, is that even possibly true? Peter, I know you have a thought about this. <laughs> Yes, Laura. So, you know, 
I actually think that it's important to look at your pacing competitor and see what they're doing and doing right. I mean, in many ways, particularly what China is doing in space solar power is what advocates like John Mankins have been advocating literally for decades and myself for a shorter time. But, you know, we essentially recommended exactly the plan that the Chinese are currently following in our 2007 Pentagon report. And while we did nothing to take action, uh, they are literally executing the, the plan that we developed and quite smartly um, for all the right reasons. So I think it's terribly important um, you know, for us to pay attention to China and to react and try to get ahead. And, and I think it's unbelievably disappointing and a failure of American leadership you know, that now all of our closest allies, the UK, ESA, Japan, are all ahead of us on this. And just to sort of go back to your earlier question about, you know, why uh, why is this controversial and why are we failing in the United States? I, I concur with John's assessment that there are deep identity and cultural reasons in the DOE and NASA, and particularly in a period of flat or declining budgets, people just clutch onto their uh, rents on the budget. And so in NASA, this is not science and it's not glory. And so, you know, they have historically wanted none of it. Um, and, you know, DOE just has always thought that this is so clearly in NASA's lane and outside of their expertise that it should be them. And then I, I really think this is, a, this is a subject where our intuition fails us and fails us badly. So in the same way that people had very people who had been in the space industry far longer than I had and were experts were unable to see reusability, first stage reusability coming, were unable to imagine that Starlink could scale. And in earlier times, were unable to imagine that flight could happen or that the transcontinental railroad, you know, uh, could happen as soon as it did. Um, you know, or even the great Vannevar Bush, the head of our World War II science and technology program, who, who said that the idea of an intercontinental ballistic missile was silly and couldn't be done. So, you know, it is often those who know the most about the current assumptions of the field that have difficulty projecting, particularly anything that's exponential as opposed to linear development. So it's very natural for people to say, Look, a, a solar panel on a satellite costs this astounding amount, and the cost of launch costs this astounding amount, and, and satellites cost this astounding amount. And of course, they said all that before uh, you know, SpaceX dropped the cost of space hardware um, on Starlink just by a, a phenomenal factor. So, you know, I think it actually comes to, I mean, part of it is not understanding how industrial learning curves work and not able to think about how costs change with volume. Um, but in many ways, you know, this comes down to a lack of executive leadership and a lack of congressional direction. You know, once you realize that NASA and the DOE are not going to take leadership to actually move forward on this, it really falls to the adults in the room at the higher level to assign them in a national strategy and a policy or congressionally to say, no, you will do this, and now there will be an office and there will be a budget for it. So essentially, you're saying the U.S. effort is missing a patron, like China's got Xi, the EU has ESA's Ashbacher, which tells you that at least politically, there are at least a number of major European nations on board. 
But in the U.S., it's not even, you know, garnered a mention in the Biden administration's unquestionably historic Inflation Reduction Act, which could have easily have been called the Green Energy Bill. You know, who's shepherding space-based solar power in the United States? No one. Uh, I mean, that's the incredible thing. You know, there are, you know, uh, several startups of which uh, John has one of those startups, an international uh, uh, concern. But, you know, there is no political home, not in either party for space solar power. There, there has been no leadership, not just across. I mean, uh, the Pentagon report was formally presented to the White House under George uh, W. Bush. And then it was presented again under Obama. And then it was, uh, you know, talked about, it's been talked about since through Trump. And now it's been talked about, you know, with astounding frequency under President Biden, you know, who, as you say, is making a lot of noise about a commitment to climate change and putting that in the space priorities framework and putting out a uh, in-space servicing assembly and manufacturing, which astoundingly doesn't even make a hat tip towards space solar power. Uh, and in many ways, you know, this is sort of, you know, we encountered similar problems trying to bring this to the Obama administration that ostensibly, you know, said they were interested in in climate change and all about the technologies. But I mean, it was extremely disappointing. I mean, I remember when Al Gore was asked to comment on this, his, his one comment was, well, I hope Homer Simpson isn't operating the beam. And that lack of seriousness in terms of really thinking about a technology that could scale to all of global demand multiple times over and catalyze, you know, a a fourth industrial revolution in space has just been continually disappointing to those of us who think this technology needs development. On a, on a slightly more positive note about the U.S. efforts, we did hear uh, in May at the International Space Development Conference a mention about NASA doing a short-term internal study on this topic uh, this year, which uh, which we understand should finish soon. So perhaps uh, we might hear something coming out of uh, NASA in this direction. We are waiting for that. But this week, NASA selected, among others, a space-based solar power company called Virtus Solis for the agency's Watts on the Moon Phase 2 program. If the U.S. government isn't going to pursue space-based solar power, are U.S. companies going to have to go through the moon and providing electricity or energy on the moon to get the necessary capital and exposure to get back to focusing on delivering energy to Earth. Yeah, it certainly is a uh, going to the moon uh, is is a is low hanging fruit from the standpoint of space energy because all of the aspirations that several dozen countries are are expressing about the uh, exploration and uh, later development of the resources. Uh, at the the lunar poles, all of that will depend upon much more energy, much more power than anything that's been uh, ever been deployed to the to the moon, much more power that's ever been deployed in space, uh, and uh, so it certainly is a is a promising path. Even though it it's kind of the long way around the barn to to go to the moon to get back to providing power for the Earth. You know it. Uh... You know, Laura, I mean, I'm I'm very glad. I mean, there are a number of efforts that are tangential. They're not meant to contribute to space solar power. 
Um, but certainly Watts on the Moon is one. You know, the studies that NASA is providing to try to think about how to power things on the Moon uh, is very important. Um, the solar sail that they'll be launching, you know, will test important control ideas that may be applicable to space solar power. There's been important work on, uh, on electric propulsion. And of course, NASA has pioneered, you know, what I think is the right approach, you know, in public-private partnerships uh, via the Kotsun commercial crew of how I would like to see it done. But I don't think that, that NASA has sort of drawn this together in a meaningful way. And, you know, I think it's, it's a real shame that NASA seems unable to even put out a small business innovative research, you know, proposal um, on space solar power to, to help develop these companies. The U.S. and the U.K. are democracies. ESA is essentially a democracy. You know, of of these democracies, I mean, can we say? Can you guys predict that we're going to at least get a prototype in orbit by the end of this decade? Technically, no problem. Technically, no problem. And 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 uh, within five years. But the question, given the uh, the democratic processes in the various countries and the inertia among the uh, the various players, uh, whether or not it will be done is a, is another question. I think uh, Sanjay mentioned earlier the idea of, of engaging the European technical community through an RFI, a request for information. I think one of the challenges with that coming out before the studies is that a lot of people are unaware, a lot of the technical community, they may have the right component technologies, but they don't have the system context and so I would I would urge uh, some kind of a restatement or a reissuing of that saying take a look at these reports take a look at these architectures and then take another look at your your technical capabilities and then answer our RFI uh, I I think a lot of them don't even have a clue because it's just not something that they're doing yeah that's right uh, John and and this RFI that we have released now was uh, an initial first look to help us understand the interest uh, as well amongst the European industries in this potential program uh, of R&D that we're planning to, to do called Solaris and uh, th that initial uh, state of the art and, and capabilities. But it's very much our intention next year if we go forward with a, with a program to do significant system level studies to come up with a new reference design, an up-to-date reference design for Europe to use to take forward further uh, technology investment decisions, as well as to, to understand costings and, and uh, uh, all the rest of that. There will be uh, future uh, opportunities for understanding what the right technologies are for the system that uh, we will ultimately uh, go forward with uh, if we do. So this is basically a stay tuned. <laughs> Absolutely. Gentlemen, Sanjay, John, Peter, thank you so much. This was a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much, Lauren. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.